Hi, good afternoon. Absolute pleasure of welcoming Andy Street, Andy Street CBE, Metro Mayor of the West Midlands, West Midlands Combined Authorities, your uh, representation. Andy, we've got a number of questions for you today. Just going to start off by saying a general introduction. And normally I hand this over to the people I'm interviewing, but I'm going to start it off by just setting it off, being a fellow Brummie as you are. Um, last three years, let's go back, backwards. Last three years, Metro Mayor, West Midlands Combined Authority. Prior to that, Manager Director of John Lewis's. So there's a retail experience there and there's a bit of political experience there. We're going to tease both those out, but I'm going to go back a little bit further than that. Oxford graduation, Oxford University, King Edward's Grammar School, Brummy through and through, educated, Brummy lad did good, went down to Oxford, came back with an outstanding degree and then stayed in the region, which is exactly what we want to encourage. So just hand it over to you, Andy. I'm going to take you, I'm going to start this discussion all the way back. And this is the, the question of your political career. I'm going to take you back to 2002. I'm going to take you back to an article, right, in The Economist, which, which said what? Can you quote me what this article refers to? In 2002? 2012. Yeah, I probably... 2012, I probably can, because I just started as LEP chair, and yep, I think the right. article was headlined, Second City, Second Class. Absolutely right. You're referring Absolutely. to, and the reason it's etched on my mind is I hated it, and I remember trying <laughs> to persuade the journalist who said they were going to produce it. I rang them yep. up, and I rang up his boss, the news editor, and said, this isn't fair. Uh, you shouldn't be printing this. And they were having none of it. And they went ahead and printed it. And their argument was basically, well, that's what the statistics say. You can't argue with the facts. And I thought, I'm going to show you, you what's it. And we're going to do better than that. But yeah, I remember it very, very well. Because I remember ringing the news editor and saying, you mustn't go ahead. And he said, I'm sorry, I am going ahead. I remember reading exactly the same article, probably having a slightly different opinion to you. But we were we would have met in a common ground and been absolutely appalled about that, looking at the region and looking at us and looking at what we can do. So let's go back three years. You've been the Metro Mayor for three years. What's happened in three years, Andy? Yeah, well, you, just, there was just you, after an election, sitting there all on your, on your own. What happened? <laughs> yeah, that, that is right. Well, one of the lovely things that's happening, connecting the conversations, is The Economist have now opened a building, a, an office here. So that may be not the most important thing to have happened in three years, but connecting with your very first question, it's nice that even The Economist have come to our party now. Uh, but uh, yeah, you're quite right, Paul. Three years ago, we had the election, and the day after, there was just me. There was not even anyone to deal with all the emails that came in, and it was a bit of a shambles initially. But we've set up the team with a small team who report to me, and then the executive structure, who, of course, are under Deborah Cadman, of your namesake, uh, and... Uh, uh, so we built the place up, but what's really also happened is we worked as an incredible team across all of the uh, all of the seven councils in the core area, the LEPs, the areas beyond in the, what we call the non-constituent councils. And working as that team, I actually think we've achieved some great things for the region. And if you look at the statistics now, or before COVID, dare I say, we did have the fastest growth rate of any region. We had record employment. We got on really building more houses than we thought we were going to. 
So, and of course, we're investing heavily in our public transport. So pre-COVID, the performance of the region, and perhaps most important of all, record job numbers, record employment rate, uh, was looking good. And the question is, what's now been blown away by COVID, of course? I'm going to tease each one of those points out of you a little bit uh, later on with some more detail. Yeah. Let's deal with COVID. Let's deal with, you know, I, I mean, first of all, you'll join me in thanking key workers, NHS staff and everybody else for doing such a fantastic job. Not just in the region, but nationally, I'm sure you want to say a few words around that. Uh, of course, sincere and straightforward, because we were probably second into this crisis yeah. after London, and just like this tsunami washed, and uh, the defence of it were actually the people who were working for the NHS, and then all the other frontline workers as well. And although we forget it now, about six, seven weeks ago, that included people in the supermarkets who were facing people not being able to buy food. It's included our transport workers, called our pol police, those who were collecting our rubbish through all of this, the refuge workers, you know, ambulance staff, the ambulance service have done a brilliant job. We've hardly heard yeah. about them. They've done yeah. so well. But all of these key workers have actually done any with what has been thrown What I'm going to ask you is, and I'm going to not to ask you to, the, uh, to respond to this, last question is going to be what's good, what's good come out of the, you know, the COVID and everything else like that, the, the pandemic. But just moving on there, what's the, your opinion you know, and I'm bearing in mind that you're a Tory metro mayor, although I don't think you as a political mayor, I think you as an individual and things like that. That's a personal opinion. But how do you think the, the government has handled the crisis, the pandemic crisis? Um, there have been good things and there have been bad things, to be very honest. Okay. I think um, the, the good thing is that they very, very quickly got on to... Um, the NHS must be protected at yeah. all costs. And uh, if you think of what happened uh, with the building of the Nightingale hospitals, the, re the making sure all of the space now existing hospitals, if need be, could be turned to COVID, that was brilliant. Who'd have thought we could build a Nightingale hospital in 10 days at the NEC? Just brilliant. Yeah. And again, lots of other people came to do that. Um, it's never been used which is actually a good thing because it was a wonderful insurance uh, policy. So that's been really good. The ability to concentrate on the care homes has been a lot less good. Yeah. And we're all scratching our head as to how on earth this has come about. And there are definitely some underlying things that when we come through COVID, we will need to come back to, Paul. Why is it that it's been so, so, so much more difficult in the care home sector than the hospital sector? And just you think about how they're organised there's big clues about that. So there's, that's been really tough. But maybe if what your question's fishing for is, what do I think about what the Prime Minister's announced last Sunday? I'll be very straight with you. I think it was exactly the right thing to do. We do have to just begin to release the uh, restrictions just very, very slowly and begin to build back. And so I do firmly come down on the camp, which says he was right just to begin that on Sunday. Okay, and, and the, the, the combat answer to that is going to be about a second wave, you know, second wave of infections and things like yeah. that. So it's down to the, you know, the mindset of the population to be sensible, mature and have a clear mindset yeah. as to what they're going to do. How are That's you going to spread that message? 
That's absolutely right. It's also down to it's also about the data as well, isn't it? And it's really, really interesting if we look at the data yeah. in the West Midlands level of infections. So I don't think we've talked about this much publicly. So we should get this out there. So uh, when we at the beginning of April, when we were called out as the second worst place in the country, you know, we had a disproportionately high number of infections, deaths, mm. everything. But actually, we are now in a much, much better position. So the last few days, we've had less than 100 infections per day. And when the country's been running at 4,000, 5,000 sometimes a day, so you can all work out straight away that's sometimes 2%. Sometimes it's been down to just 1% of the country's infections. And remember, we're 5% of the population. So actually, we've gone from being really bad to being well below average. And although we don't see these regional R rates, as they're called, Hours we can work out has come down really, really well. So thinking about a second uh, spike, we at least start in a really mm. good place that the virus has clearly been very well suppressed here. But as you said, Paul, it's going to be down to all of us to make sure that second spike doesn't come about by yeah. continuing to follow the rules and also by being sensible and using our judgment. What I, what I do find really interesting is that Sadiq Khan has been included in some of the COBRA meetings, which actually I think is quite interesting and I think it's a good idea. Looking at devolution and controlling of the regions, I like that, but I'm questioning why the, the rest of the Metro mayors haven't been involved in that, albeit virtually yeah. or physically. What do you think about that, Andy? Yeah, you're quite right. He has been. And, you know, I keep it in perspective because I'd love to be there with him, but there's a long tradition of actually the London mayor being involved in those things. So I don't. I don't take it uh, personally that they haven't. <laughs> but what we've been really clear with government on is this. So long as it was one national position through the health crisis, uh, then we could sort of accept that we didn't go to COBRA. But what we can't accept is if there are going to be different regional arrangements for the ending of the lockdown, we've got to be absolutely at the table there to discuss them and understand them. And I think that point's been taken. And thus far, it's just an, a... Uh, Thus far, it's just a nationwide approach. But if it shifts from that, I've absolutely got to be there. Just one last thought, though. COBRA isn't the be-all and end-all of everything. It might sound very grand, but actually you can still make just as much progress by texting the health secretary and saying, got this little problem, we need to deal with it now. And that sort of direct access is just as important as that formal thing. I think that's interesting, but I, I think it'd be nice for us to read the text, understand what Andy Street's, you know, challenging for us and things like that. So which leads us on to my next point. Talking about technology and adapting technology, the, the, the first PMQs has had half a dozen people sitting there and lots of big screens all around yeah, the, the House of Commons with people asking questions. I'm looking for the future and looking for the devolution, more power, more say into the regions. Wouldn't it be a fantastic idea for Andy Street to be appearing on one of these screens and to be able to ask at PMQs you know, a question based on the region and say, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Ah, fascinating. Now, being really straightforward, that ain't going to happen. Yeah. Because, you know, I think they will defend the integrity of Parliament being elected. But what I do think, what I do really firmly agree with is the idea that uh, was actually going to be in David Cameron's plans for being PM with mayors when they first came about was that there would be a sort of council or committee of mayors that would meet with the PM, however frequent, I think he said four times a year. I would love it to be televised. And Michael Hesseltine repeated that suggestion. And that's where I think it would go. But they will never allow someone who's not elected as an MP. 
to be part of PMQs. They'll lie down and defend themselves before they give back ground. <laughs> I totally understand, but you just not being in the, in the chamber, but being on the wall, maybe technology might even change the influence of uh, parliaments. But moving on, so the West Midlands Combined Authority has formed an economic impact group and he started to look at the regional recovery plan. Yeah. So I want to tease some of the comments about the regional recovery plan. But there's 10 points. I don't expect you to be able to quote them verbatim, but, you know, we can guide you through each point. You know, but let's, let's start off with the first point, which is very quick. Ensure residents are kept safe and healthy. Are the combined yeah. authority taking responsibility for that? Um, not on its own and not exclusively, but it's yeah. a very, I think it's very important point place to start because there's this sort of, sort of what I think is a complete myth being put around that you either concentrate on health or you concentrate on the economic recovery. And I don't see it like that at all. I see it yeah. much more going hand in glove like this. So what we're saying is we've got, of course, to make the priority around uh, health, but at the same time, we've got to begin the recovery and actually, we wrote this before last Sunday. That is what the Prime Minister said last Sunday night. So that's why it's there as the very first starting point. And of course, health and safety goes well beyond just dealing with coronavirus. It's all the stuff about let's get the health service up and running so it can deal with normal health issues. And actually, let's think about the mental health issues that are coming from lockdown as well. So that's all part of the recovery. So we talk about the next point, which is acceleration of transport and construction plans. We had the pleasure of downtown in business in the in the Brummie Den. We had Laura Shove come in. Oh, and yeah. We were talking about yes, one, yeah, 1.3 billion investments, you know, and we were talking about a 30-year strategy. We're looking to move the West Midlands considerably forward, no pun intended on the moving. If we look at accelerating things, can we get this money? Can we get it earlier? Can we make the region, the connectivity, including HS2, maybe the second runway, a Birmingham airport, can we accelerate this? Can we turn really us into UK central? Uh, so the answer is yes. So and the most important decision that's been made in the last few weeks was, of course, to go ahead with HS2. And then the technical point about the notice to proceed, what that was, and remember that was given during lockdown by government, that means yeah. that HS2 Limited can start actually awarding the contract, which are billions of pounds, to construction and that puts people into work. So that was a critical thing. But what that part of the recovery plan is saying is, yeah, there are things that we can control in terms of the capital. Let's get on and spend it as quickly as we can. Because frankly, if it's sitting in the bank, it's not actually employing people. So it's saying, let's get on with the metro extensions, with the sprint extensions, with the station rebuilds. So we're trying to get those spades in ground as quickly as we can, Paul. One, so that, that's even increasing because of the COVID crisis, because of the recovery plan. We're looking to step that up even quicker, just to clarify. Trying to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And we just go back on to Stuart Plant, who wants to know, with the huge investment in the infrastructure, the, uh, the joined up transport network across West Midlands, how will you, bearing in mind that you've been quite vocal about this, how will you ensure that the various operators provide a consistent and good and seamless service when you'll be taking responsibility for that, Andy? How will you provide yeah, okay. so I think this works? is over I think this is primarily over West Midlands trains, because I hope people would agree that yeah. the tram service is pretty good, pretty reliable, yeah. and obviously that's run by us. And I hope people would actually agree, and I might get my head bitten off for saying this, 
that actually the bus operator here is pretty good as well, works with us in a really collaborative way, fares frozen, the technology coming in, new vehicles coming in. So the focus of this has been the train service. And of course, the answer to the question is that I have tried to hold them to account without the formal power so to do and to call them out. And uh, frankly, the fines have been imposed. They've prevented fare increases. So we had that frozen. But the ultimate way, and this was in the Conservative Manifesto, is you pass responsibility formally to uh, the Metro mayors to, be hold, to have the role of holding them to account. At the moment, the franchise operator are responsible to DFT. That seems a bit distant. I think they should be responsible to me on behalf of the citizens of the West Midlands formally, and we should control effectively the extension of their franchise or otherwise ultimately. We've certainly felt your frustrations on social media occasionally. You've seen it. Good. The Andy Street social media platform has been alive with criticism about transport and things like that. But moving on, look, the next point is about building homes faster than reshaping town centres and things like that. But before we talk about homes, let's just jump in about the homelessness. So we've magically, over the period of the last few weeks, resolved there's still a few characters of their own fruition won't go, you know, that sort of thing. Can't help those people. We can only, you know, we can lead a horse to water, can't make a drink. But at the minute, we've resolved the homelessness around not only the, the Birmingham, but around, around the combined authority. Can we continue this? Can we still draw down funds from central government? Can we, can we look after these people? Can we look at their multiple complex problems, do you think? Yeah, OK, really important question. So it's ironic, isn't it, that on the back of coronavirus, we've made more progress on this than for years uh, before. Yeah. So just so everybody who's watching knows what happened, at the beginning of the crisis, every homeless person in each, or every rough sleeper, I should say, to be precise, in uh, each of the, of the local councils was approached by the outreach teams and offered accommodation. In a number of the boroughs, that's been in hotels, particularly as in Birmingham, that's the solution. And as Paul said, the huge majority of people have moved in which is great. They're not at risk to themselves and indeed to others on the streets at the moment. What we have said to government is we never want to go back. We want to make sure that whatever it takes, when we come out of coronavirus, we're able to offer these people a new start, a new supported accommodation. That's what's done. And the straight answer question, Paul, is those are the conversations that are going on right now about how we can do it. So I can't look you in the eye and say, yeah, I can guarantee it. I can absolutely say, absolutely say that is the ambition and we're trying to work towards it though. And one thing that gives me hope, of course, in it is the housing first piece because we were actually already doing a pretty good job. Up to about 180 people had moved into housing first and I hope that will become an even more significant part of what we do to those who are in the temporary uh, hotel accommodation or whatever else enduring the coronavirus outbreak relatively happy that you're on that one that was one of your main manifesto points as well and you you know all those all of those yeah, years yeah. ago albeit three years ago okay no, let's look at it, the, yeah. <laughs> let's look at jobs you know and yeah. the job retention looking at small businesses let's wrap that around you know the, the support from the government i interviewed uh, in downtown business ian ward ian ward was pretty good because he said looking at the government framework initially it seems particularly good However, probably 90% of the businesses in or around Birmingham SMEs, and they don't actually sit within that support framework, albeit this was a few weeks ago. Ian suggested that the, the local, uh, the Birmingham City Council would make local arrangements for different industries, different businesses and things like that. 
and asked for people to contact him and said, we'll do things, we'll shape things, we'll make things happen. What's your mindset about supporting industries? And let's pick up on a specific industry. Let's deal with retail initially, and then we'll go into the hospitality. So if I can lead you on okay. those two points. Yeah, yeah, with pleasure. So actually, I am surprised by what Ian said, that 90% of Birmingham businesses don't qualify. I don't recognise that number at all, but, you know, I, he must defend it. Uh, so what the government have said is that pretty much every uh, small business uh, has actually qualified for this. Every small business that has a business rate payment has qualified yes. for this uh, business grant, as it's called either at 10,000 or 25,000. And if you look, there have been literally hundreds of millions of pounds paid out across the West Midlands to all of those businesses. And I find it hard to believe that's only 10% of businesses. That doesn't seem likely or right uh, to me. So that's been paid out straight away to give cash flow. What's also been paid, and this has had huge celebration in the press actually, is the uh, furloughing, as it's called, the job retention scheme. The unions have been fairly, very appreciative of it. The Chancellor's just announced the extension of it for another uh, month. And then we're going to think about how it goes uh, after the 1st of August to be more uh, flexible. By the way, flexible means um, less generous, is my suspicion. It's an interesting word for it. And then also businesses who want can, uh, uh, can seek a loan as well. So actually, I would say the government has been pretty fulsome in that and what's also been paid today of course literally these last few days has been the support for the self-employed who are in business as well uh, they've had this grant up to seven thousand five hundred pounds to cover for the last three months there are still holes in the support though to be really clear and i'm still calling those out with the chancellor so there is no support for those small businesses who pay themselves as directors i personally that's wrong it's not a conservative value to deny those people and until last week we also hadn't got support for those people. And this is where Ian was right uh, when he was talking. Uh, we have not got support for those who don't get paid business rates themselves because they may be paying in a shared accommodation or something. That too has been addressed by government in recent days. If you then come to the Sorry, go on. retail and hospitality, yep. So uh, in a, for those two sectors, the government were very, very quick to identify that they were the most vulnerable sectors so in addition to everything I've already described, they are exempt for business rates for uh, the balance of this year. So there's been specific support put in there. And what I hope will happen, Paul, is that those sectors who cannot return, and hospitality is always the best example, is the furlough scheme will be more generous in its extension to them than it is to other sectors. So when people talk of this flexibility, I hope it will be sector specific so the hospitality sector will feel properly supported for longer, if that makes sense. Yeah, brilliant. Okay. So just flying through, and I'm mindful of the time, Andy, we'd lost you for a, for a few moments. My there. apologies. Fine, fine, fine. Looking at the um, setting up green uh, plans, I found it fascinating. I went into the city centre, and I'm going to qualify that because I went in to give blood. But there was no vehicles and everything else like that. The air was clean, that the city was clean. Going back, looking at the stats, and we talk about 8% reduction in CO2 measurements and carbon monoxide measurements. Clearly, no vehicles on the road, carbon monoxide dissipates very quickly. But CO2, 8%, that's cleaner in the city. That's absolute fact that reduction of vehicles and emissions and things like that, we can get onto the emission charges or the, and things like that afterwards if you want to. 
that's critical in what's your green agenda where are you you know where are you going to strike home with this so there's lots of things to this aren't there so um you you can start with the short term we've got a commitment to tree planting a million trees for example that really matters particularly the co2 issues and we're getting on with that but actually the longer term issues are about transport and actually about uh, home uh, production of um uh, damaging gases so let's just think uh, so let's just think uh, so uh, on transport we have got to move away from the combustion engine and that means two things one it means investing in public transport and greening that the active travel cycling and i know we're all just being encouraged to get back in our car in the short term for health <laughs> reasons but that will pass and so everything we're doing investing literally billions of pounds as we said earlier on in public transport is helping the greening and before COVID, we were doing really well. All forms of public transport were taking high numbers of people. We were just beginning to give people the alternatives to car. The second thing, of course, is actually the automotive industry is really important to us, but it's got to become a green automotive industry. So all the stuff with JLR about moving to electrification, that's the big thing I really, really want to get behind because we want to be the leaders in that worldwide. That's why the whole sort of battery technology stuff Really important, the announcement that Castle Bromwich was to turn into a, an electric vehicle production for JLR, really important. And the next big thing we need to do there is get what we call this gigafactory, which is going to be where the batteries are manufactured, because that will cement our leadership in that green sector as well there. So I want us to think about this as a, uh, a the, the, the sort of automotive sector as a solution to the green issue rather than a challenge to it. And honestly, there's a lead position for us waiting to open up for us there if you look at uh, Brim University uh, a striding ahead talking about hydrogen hydrogen yeah. fuel and things like that JCB are now producing buses with hydrogen powered buses yeah. and things like that when will we see them on the roads of the West Midlands do you think and electric diggers JCB are also producing which we've been using already actually in one of two of our test sites so it's coming and electric buses we're going to have our first trial of that with um, National Express very shortly uh, electric bus manufacture we want to have we just signed a uh, Coventry companies just signed up there uh, if you think as well of um, all the sort of pods that are coming as well from Westfield in Dudley from Marigo in Coventry so all of these new tech pieces are coming on the hydrogen buses I am hoping that we have a, uh, a hydrogen bus trial in time for the Commonwealth Games to come specifically to your question but as well we remember we've committed with our sprint vehicles they will be battery operated as well uh, our trams have got the first battery operated trams so wherever you look we are deploying those new vehicles here already and you might have seen as well we're also going to be a trial region for the e-scooter so lots of these new techs are coming onto the streets of the west midlands we'll definitely come on to technology so 5g yeah. um clearly 5g's had a little bit of bad press and things like that i'm not even going to enter into that what i am going to ask you though your opinion as 5G testbed, which is fantastic for us, the UK, probably Europe, what's 5G going to mean to you and to us just on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, well, the good thing is, it, well, I suppose it means leadership is one word. Do you know, it's about 16% of people now can get a 5G signal across the West Midlands. I think they, it hasn't even been launched in France. So, you know, we really are uh, at the cutting edge of this. What it will mean, though, is of course on the face of it there's wonderful things like being able to download um, uh, download uh, your film when you're sitting on the bus going to work or on the train much faster much more reliably 
probably the signal not dropping out as we just had in this interview. Uh, that would be much better if it was a 5G transmission. But what it, the really important stuff, though, is it being able to be applied by businesses and organisations. So whether it be in transmission of data in health, and you just think if you've got a really reliable, in, we've done so much remote consultation in the health service as a result of coronavirus and people not being able to come together. Utter reliability of those images by 5G would be brilliant. If you think of the building industry and being able to take all the images of building sites, again, on 5G, plan, your plans transmit those easily. If you're creative, you're doing something in theatre or whatever. All of these industries being able to share all of their work in a much more reliable, instantaneous way. They're all really good commercial opportunities. And what it means, as I say, is the West Midlands getting ahead of others in that respect. I spoke to a professor at BCU who specialises in 5G and I said, what will it do for us? He said, in a nutshell, it's the difference between a gramophone and an iPhone. And I thought that was brilliant. So that, that's kind of where they are. More succinct answer than I found you. <laughs> <laughs> you, can get, you can take that one, Andrew. Let's just talking about the region. What, what you know, let, going back to the year 2012 comments, you know, we've addressed that. We've rolled our sleeves up. We've got a brummy mindset. We move forward. We've got opening our ninth entrepreneurial hub, which is by BCU at Millennium Point. Ninth entrepreneurial hub. We've got the youngest, you know, youngest population in Europe. We've got the most startup businesses. We were absolutely flying, and you started to say that prior to the COVID breaking out. Where, where are we going to be after that? This fragile economy that we've got locally with all of these entrepreneurs real, and startups. This is a real um, painful question, Paul. Um, yeah. And I'm sure everybody feels this. I'm not saying everything was right. It wasn't. We've still got horrible inequalities. But if you looked at the region's performance, we were, to use your word, flying. And uh, that's been stopped in its tracks. Now, that's why all the things about how we recover are really important and the new tech sectors there. But I have this sort of in, innate belief that um, what drove that, to use your word again, flying position, that hasn't been eradicated by COVID. The yeah. ingenuity of the population, the youthfulness, the deployment of technology, the concentration of opportunities and the Commonwealth Games is still coming, City of Culture is still coming. It, we will have these opportunities again. But my goodness, it's going to have been an enormous sideswipe. And the stats will say there's been a huge reduction in, um, in the economy. And we will, I just know, have some very painful personal stories on the back of that. Businesses failing, what have you. So we've got to rebuild after that. And it's going to be hard. And it's very frustrating that such a brilliant situation has been hit in that way. But I think the young population will learn, will, will grow, will become stronger. And we will... We will survive. You know, we've done it for hundreds, if not thousands of years in the region, that kind of mindset. I think what's quite interesting as well, that you've just mentioned the, the city of culture. Is that something that's on our radar, do you think? Oh, yeah. It's, uh, um, uh, if you're having this conversation exclusively in Coventry, we wouldn't have got, I don't know, 40 minutes through without getting to it. It would have been in the first exactly. four minutes. Uh, so for the region, it's a brilliant opportunity. Just remember this, and let's hope this still comes to pass. Uh, that in terms of visitors, City of Culture is expected to have about two and a half million visitors. That's what happened in Hull. And uh, Commonwealth Games is expected to be a billion visitors. Uh, sorry, a million visitors. Uh, not billion. <laughs> That's too much. Uh, so see the comparison. It's a huge, huge opportunity. And it's already brought lots of investment into Coventry, boutique hotels opening, uh, 
residential schemes being developed, and of course, a big improvement in the sort of look and feel of the city centre as well. So it's already having advantageous effects in Coventry. It would be a great opportunity to show off around Britain for that. Talking about visitors into the region and, and the, probably the loss of revenue and things like that, I was astounded to, to read and to learn that there's 5.5 million visitors come to the German market every year and it's worth in about 500 million, about, to the local economy. We're going to be losing billions of pounds, clearly, with visitors in, you know, uh, coming to see German markets, our theatres, our, our, our restaurants, our Michelin-style restaurants, everything that we've got good in the region. We're going to lose out on all of this. We've got to yeah. focus on getting us back on the, the radar of the globe, haven't we? So what's yeah, the plan to get, to get the West Midlands onto the radar of the globe? How, how yeah, are we going to so tackle that? There's two answers to this. In the short term, subject to it all being safe and healthy, yep. we need to get these places reopened as quickly as possible. And I hope he won't mind me talking about him when he's not on the line. We're having a chat with Paul Tandy, who runs the NEC, hugely successful business for the West Midlands uh, with all of their different venues. And he is already thinking about how could he reopen that place safely. And that's really important that we begin to send the message out that we are open for business. And hopefully as we go through the latter part of the summer and into the autumn, we'll be able to do that because it really, really matters for opportunities here. The wider point though, about the promotion of the region, we were lucky just in the budget um, that occurred just before the lockdown to win new funding to support a sort of business promotion piece on the back of the Commonwealth Games. New money, 22 million, simply to promote the region in this business expo. And uh, we're going to turn that now very much as a sort of recovery from COVID, telling the story, business in the region is open for business. So we've got a perfect opportunity to do that. Fantastic. We've got a pot of money. So what I want to talk about now is re-election. So by now, we would have known who was the, uh, the Metro right. Mayor. You know, going forward, we've got another 12 months to do that. But stepping back, you would have created your manifesto. Knowing you, it would have been word perfect, information, figures, everything would have been perfect. That's not going to test the time of 12 months. In 12 months' time, I, I would hazard a guess that manifesto would be pretty much ripped off and recreated, considering the situation we're in, the economic climate, you know, and the way that the, 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 the region is shaped. What's it going to look like in 12 months' time, Andy? Have you got any snippets for us? The region or the manifesto? Yeah, your manifesto for your re-election. Okay, so um, where I hope we'll be in 12 months' time is this, that uh, we will have, um, we'll know the damage that COVID has done by 12, yep. 12 months' time. And let's not be naive about it. There will be some damage sustained. But hopefully, we'll begun to have moved through our recovery plan. And I will hopefully be saying to people, look, we put this together as a team. I led that team and we've really only begun to rebuild and stick with the plan and the team that has actually done that. And one thing I really, really hope that people would say about me is I'm not a very partisan person. I'm a person who's tried to build that team together, bring everyone together. And we will need that teamwork to succeed in 12 months time. And I sort of desperately feel we've got to use this big setback to really be ambitious again. And I hope I will be being ambitious in what we lack in terms of the green agenda, the new industrial agenda, uh, new type and form of house building agenda, 
all of those things, the region is going to need to recover. And we're going to say in 12 months time, let's actually accelerate getting on with all of those things. So the, the initial term was for three years. The second term yeah. is for four years. Yeah. You're going to be re-elected, we hope. You'll have an eight-year term. What's Andy Street going to do after eight years? Will he go for the third term or is he going to go somewhere else? <laughs> I think I'll go and lie on a beach pool. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, they say in the US, um, they say in the US that two terms is enough. It's, um, uh, it's of course, officially limited there, isn't it? Um, yeah. So uh, who yeah. knows how one would feel at that time. All I'm concentrating on at the moment is just being uh, lucky enough to have done it for a first term, made the role, whatever happens. I hope people say, yeah, you made the role. Hopefully be re-elected and then hopefully deliver what we said we'd do. Might it end up as Lord Street going into the House of Lords, representing the, the region there, maybe? It's not the plan at all, Paul. I'm uh, a bit of a sceptic as to really uh, how much value is added by the House of Lords. Indeed, that's the first time we've heard you publicly say that. I'm looking at the time, Andy, and you gave us 45 minutes of your time. Yeah, so if you're happy for us to round up now and we'll just finish off, just make a few last comments. I'm going to give you the opportunity of just addressing the audience. If you've got a general statement or anything that you would like to say, well, we've got a very positive and engaged audience, I'd welcome you to do that. I think uh, I would just say two things. And the first, it might sound blindingly obvious this, but it has to be said. Thank you for the way in which we've come through this coronavirus epidemic. We were incredibly badly hit at the beginning. But the fact, as we said in the numbers about half an hour ago, we've got ourselves to a slightly better position. Huge tragedies along the way. We've lost a lot of people. And that's always, always the most important thing of all. We are coming through it. And then I hope the teamwork that we saw before to get ourselves to a pretty good place will last through and we can rebuild the region probably better than we went into this crisis. But together, we can do great things. And that's what we must all now focus on. And the very last question I teased you earlier on, what are the positives we can take out of this uh, the COVID you know, and the, the pandemic that we've been in, the situation we find ourselves in? What are the positives? Uh, well, being a bit flippant, uh, some of us have learnt new technology, some of us have failed with new technology, uh, but that will last. That's the way breakthroughs occur. Uh, I'm sure there are some people who've uh, become fitter than they were before it, and hopefully a few more will with the cycling walking encouragement. And then there's really a piece, isn't there, about reflecting on what you value. And I'm sure people have all come to realise that it's their family and their friends that they value above all else. And those relationships those social things are the things that are far more important than any uh, physical or, um, uh, or, or anything around uh, uh, acquisition of things. It's always those real human things that you come to value most of all. And I suspect this crisis will have um, reaffirmed that in everybody's mind. I think for me, there's a couple of points that I want to pick up on. One, the, the use of technology, we can work, we can function. Do we really need to be in, a, uh, in an office in the middle of the city? We can work from home. We can do that. We can engage with our families a little bit more. We've got to know each other a little bit more. Fantastically, that we've turned around who we represent in society as heroes. Oh, so yeah. the reality stars and people like that and footballers, sporting people like that are no longer at the top of the chain. We're representing and we're respecting people who work in supermarkets, work in care homes and work in the NHS. 
we've got a different appreciation and outlook on life. And hopefully we'll keep that going for a bit longer. Uh, Andy Street, just want to thank you very much for coming into the den, representing uh, downtown in business. I've been Paul Gadman. I'm still Paul Gadman. And very best of luck for the next 12 months. Hopefully we'll see you again. Take care, Andy. Thank you for your time. Thanks a lot, Paul. Very good to be with you all. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.